what's going on, anesthesia nerds. This is Tasha McNerney, and I am here with another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast. This is a podcast where you can learn all the coolest, newest, latest tips and tricks for veterinary anesthesia and pain management on your drive to work or your run if you're into running, which I'm not, and that's fine. Um, You guys, good job with your running. But if you're listening to this while running, keep going. You're doing great. Uh, But anyway... I am joined today by a really fantastic anesthesiologist. If you guys have had the pleasure of hearing him lecture at some of the major um, national conferences, um, that's where I first met him at Fetch, I think in San Diego. Um, But my guest today is Dr. Ralph Harvey, who is a veterinarian and also a DACVAA. So he is a specialist Uh, with the American College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia. He currently works as a consultant in practice and in the industry. Um, He's really into promoting kind of best practices, best medicine. Um, He's well-versed in fear-free practices and really on the kind of cutting edge of what's coming out there and new methods of anesthesia and pain management care. He is the chair of the Veterinary Advisory Board for the BioTrace Corporation, and yes, you're going to be hearing about that in the future, I guarantee you. He retired from the faculty of University of Tennessee College of Veterinary Medicine. He taught anesthesia. He taught pain management. He taught technicians and veterinarians how to be badasses in pain management and anesthesia for 33 years, people. He knows his shit. Let's get into it right now with... Dr. Ralph Harvey, thank you so much for joining us. Tasha, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for the longest time, and I've been listening to your podcasts, and it's a, it's a great honor to, to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, thank you for being on. We are so excited to learn from you today and talk to you about, you know, um, all kinds of different stuff. Uh, but for, before we get into our uh, case of the day, uh, I just want to talk to you about kind of what have you been doing? How have you been handling the whole uh, quarantine, COVID thing? Have you been um, working in practice? Have you been doing lectures? What have you been up to? You know, COVID has changed everything for everybody, and it still has, still will for a while, I'm afraid. When I retired, we didn't have any idea that COVID was going to come along about a year later. And I was pretty much engaged in uh, working with Fear Free Pets, uh, speaking and consulting, as you mentioned, and working with this company, BioTraceIt, and quite busy in my quasi-retirement, my semi-retirement. I really very much engaged. Now, COVID put an end to most all of our meetings, of course. And eventually, the organizers figured out the platforms, and now we're doing a lot of conferences by WebEx and Zoom, and we're all turning into Zoombies eventually. I was on two Zoom conferences this morning and one yesterday already. So it's a relief to be on a different platform right now with you, I can tell you. (laughs) So it has kind of thrown a monkey wrench into a lot of our conferences. My wife is a veterinarian. She's been getting her CE hours uh, virtually, and and we're all figuring out how to do that. So we all look forward to going back to meetings and in-person interaction and learning and exhibit halls and all the fun that goes along with the meetings. But I can tell you for the organizers, and for the participants both, these platforms are working pretty well. So I think we'll continue to use the virtual platforms uh, post-COVID also. And, uh, and I can t- tell you that one thing I've noticed in COVID in our profession is that veterinary practices are so busy. There's so much demand 
for veterinarians and veterinary medicine. There's such a shortage for well-trained and experienced technicians. There's such a shortage for veterinarians. It's a great time to be coming out of school. Clients are sitting at home. They're spending more quality time with their animals. You know, they're watching them. They're observing their abnormal behaviors along with their normal behaviors. They're recognizing signs of disease and illness. And many of the clients have excess money jingling around in their pocket because they're not traveling. So it's a good time in veterinary business. And business is booming. Business is booming. And, and uh, I, I think we'll will revolutionize our lives yet again when the vaccine is fully distributed and hopefully will be safe and the more difficult variants that are popping up around the world are under control. So yeah, COVID's, COVID's been a problem, but uh, we're all getting along. That's all true. And safe. I'm sure the people listening, you know, have, they're all shaking their head that yes, all of their clinics are crazy bananas busy right now. Um, everyone is so busy in veterinary medicine. I know that you're doing, you know, online lecturing, and I know I personally have seen you in the past doing lecturing. I know that you have run wet labs as well. Just before we got on here with the podcast, when we were chit-chatting, something you said to me that I, I kind of want to highlight here in this podcast, because I think that this really is kind of the essence of why I do what I do as far as education, creation, content, and that kind of thing. And I really have always believed that... Um, it's really important to kind of work together on things. And I know that you have taught wet labs um, and a little bit different than that you want technicians to come to your lectures and labs together with the veterinarians. So yes. can you kind of, you know, tell everybody kind of what you told me in the beginning about why that's so important to have them together? Yes. Um, the idea was generated by a friend of mine who's in the industry, probably. 25 years ago now, and he suggested we put together a series of programs called Partners in Pain Management, and he would sponsor these small meetings where we would assemble in an outstanding practice in an area, in a big city or region, and a few other practices in the area would be invited to participate, and each one would bring in a veterinarian and a key technician, at least one of each to establish that partnership in pain management. And we would conduct um, a lab session for them in the evening or on a Saturday and have simulations and supplies and sometimes cadavers to have hands-on opportunity for people to learn how to do the regional and specific nerve blocks and uh, field blocks and simple application of local anesthetics to start spreading the message on local anesthesia as a part of perioperative anesthesia and analgesia. And this was, as I said, probably 20, 25 years ago. But a key feature was that partnership in pain management. Whenever we return home after a conference, and I know everyone can relate to this, you come back and you're at, at work for the first day and they say, hey, did you hear anything interesting? And you start to tell them, yeah, there was this, this and this. And, and it doesn't take long before people's eyes glaze over and they're bored or they're distracted by the task that's at hand. And, and the idea, the moment is lost, the opportunity to start something new. But on the other hand, if a pair of individuals, a veterinarian and a veterinary technician, have gone together as a partnership and simultaneously learned right next to each other, hand in hand, how to do those applications of local anesthetics, 
when they go back into their practice setting, they will support each other's interest. And the implementation of that new skill is far higher when we have that partnership approach. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's why at the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Conference, we encourage veterinarians that are attending to bring their technicians with them. Um, And for our regional nerve block wet lab that we do uh, every year at the conference, we encourage people to, uh, you know, we encourage veterinarians and technicians together to attend because, yeah, it's, it makes a huge difference. And ultimately, that's going to trickle down to better patient care. So that's a win for us. (laughs) Sister, amen. You got it. All right. So because this is a case-based podcast and we want to give some uh, of the folks listening some good tips to take back into their practice, um, you know, after they get done with their run or exercising or whatever they're doing while they're listening to this podcast. Um, We're going to talk about a case today and it's something that um, I haven't talked about yet on the podcast. Maybe we've touched a little bit on, but we're going to really kind of go deep uh, into this subject with you because I think that it happens. This patient is seen a lot in practice, and sometimes we just don't know the best way to approach things. And so, Dr. Harvey, anesthesiologist extraordinaire, your case today is a 14-year-old domestic short hair that needs extensive dentistry. We know this cat needs multiple extractions done, but the owners have been really reluctant to bring the cat in and put the cat under anesthesia because they're scared of anesthesia. They know that the cat has kidney disease, and in fact, they've been doing sub-Q fluids at home um, like twice a week, Um, but they're finally going to, you know, pull the trigger. They're going to get the dentistry done under anesthesia, and what are some tips or some thoughts that you have as far as the anesthesia goes for the kidney disease patient to make anesthesia as safe as possible, you know, and just... Give the clinicians out there and the technicians out there, you know, what are some ways that we can make this the best experience possible for that pet? This is not an unusual type of patient presentation, is it? You know, there's no. so much <laughs> comorbidity with regard to the kidneys. And as, as patients age in particular, and more so with cats than with dogs, I, I came across a, a figure on the prevalence of, of significant renal disease, about 10% in dogs. And and maybe 30% in cats. And if you look at old cats, and particularly cats that have osteoarthritis, and some of the estimates, uh, the valid estimates on the prevalence of osteoarthritis in cats uh, suggest that 90% of old cats have clinically significant osteoarthritis, most often undiagnosed and untreated, uh, which is very sad, and hopefully we're getting better about that. But among the cats that have osteoarthritis, I've seen a figure published that 60% of the cats that have clinically significant osteoarthritis, now that skews the population to all the older ones because age is the primary factor for OA in cats. But 60% of cats that have OA have concurrent significant renal disease and is not recognized. Just like OA is, osteoarthritis is usually not recognized or adequately appreciated. So the patient has a lifetime of pain. A lifetime of pain. And it's sad. And that's in dogs and in cats also, but probably has been worse in cats before. Now, I imagine in your other podcast, you've addressed things like the assessment of pain and the feline grimace scale and the behavioral indices of, of pain. And there are many good metrics that are available right now. There's a good website that uh, all of our listeners can, can access called the New Science of OA Pain. You can search for the new science of OA pain and see 
suggestions and charts that can be shared with clients, uh, video clips and animations that can be used to help clients recognize signs of pain in cats as well as in dogs. And it's not just OA pain, but it certainly includes that. So, so there's a lot of osteoarthritis. There's a lot of renal disease. And there's, of course, a tremendous amount of dental disease out there that is unrecognized. Or in the situation like this patient may typify is recognized, but the clients and often the veterinary personnel are reluctant to or afraid to anesthetize that patient because they are, quote, so old. Or they might be said they're too old to anesthetize. Or they might say specifically, we know that this cat has significant underlying renal disease. and We don't want to make it worse. And there's such a big justifiable fear about compounding renal disease, stacking acute on chronic, if you will, renal disease. So make it worse through the process of trying to help the patient by the dental procedure. So we're going to do a comprehensive, extensive dentistry on this animal, what the dentists will often call a comprehensive oral health assessment and and treatment, or COHAT. And they might say uh, COHAPT, Comprehensive Oral Health Assessment Preventative and Treatment. Uh, But there are going to be multiple extractions. So this cat has a bad mouth and needs to lose some teeth. And it reminds me of the oral gingivitis stomatitis complex where multiple extractions are, are the order of the day. And we'll turn that animal's life around for the better. We need to get out that source of chronic, substantial pain, get out that source of potential infection, which, of course, long ago we recognized could give rise to more uh, renal disease and more cardiac disease. There's some question as to whether showering with bacteria actually really occurs in these animals as a result of specifically the cleaning procedure itself and the gingival work. But it may be that they're always showered with these bacteria. So it sets the stage for some some worse disease. And it certainly sets the stage for a chronic maladaptive inflammatory pain in these animals. And it becomes a matter of humane care for these animals, just like much of cancer pain management is a matter of humane palliative care to take care of these animals, rather than dooming them to a lifetime of illness and pain and malnutrition. Okay, so we need to have a serious, informed conversation with the clients in this particular situation. We already know that this animal has significant renal disease because they've been giving sub-Q fluids at home. So that tells us that we have some substantial renal disease or we would not have been prescribing that and facilitating their in-home uh, hydration for that animal. We are fortunate that we have a better test now in the SDMA analysis instead of relying on BUN and creatinine. So we can recognize uh, uh, renal disease earlier and recognize it with better validity. So, so we have an opportunity to pick that up. So we certainly should profile that animal to see where we are and how we are doing. We also need to make sure that animal has a decent level of albumin. He's been getting fluids. He's an older patient. Uh, how's his hydration status? How's his volume status? We need to set up for this case. We need planning. That includes the infrastructure that we have. So we have, we would anticipate and hope, trained and dedicated personnel because the trained and dedicated anesthetist is by far the best monitor that we will ever have for anesthesia. I see you smiling. And I know you <laughs> virtually high 100%. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. When I go yeah. into some practices and uh, there's a technician 
trying to clean the teeth and monitor the anesthesia at the same time. It just doesn't, no, no, no. <laughs> we could do better. Answering the phone occasionally or talking to somebody about a totally different patient, which is just a horrible thing to ask anybody to do, even if they're just doing anesthesia testing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, that's uh, a lack of focus, uh, which compromises patient safety. So the most important monitor, the most important thing we can do to improve our chance of success is have that trained, dedicated uh, anesthetist. We should have facilities capable of keeping this patient warm and well oxygenated and monitoring that would include blood pressure. Absolutely. These days, I think it's routine to have pulse oximetry, certainly. We always look for practices, and I know many in your group and podcast audience already have capnometry, the ability to measure end tidal carbon dioxide as the best indication for adequacy of ventilation and as our early warning device to let us know we're starting to get in trouble with most patients. We should monitor that patient's temperature during the case. Before anesthesia, we need to do some things to get ready. And one of them might be pre-visit pharmaceuticals, which is probably another topic also. But it is likely that this animal will come into the hospital for this particular procedure already receiving some gabapentin, the usual 20 to 40 milligrams per kilogram high dose to bring it into the the patient, uh, uh, easy to handle in a stress-free fashion. Follow the principles of fear-free pets, the low-stress handling uh, of these animals, uh, using whatever we can to make this a comfortable experience, using things like the feel-away, pheromone spray, uh, separate areas if we can for cats and dogs, not keeping them in the waiting area, using a carrier that's that's comfortable for the animal and can be opened, leaving the carrier out in the living space at home before they load them up to bring them in so it's a normal part of the furniture. In my house, I have to chase the cats out of the carrier so I can use it to put the little dog in to bring him in the hospital. All those things can set the stage for anesthesia, and then we need to expect that this is going to take some time. This is going to be a, a pretty extensive uh, dentistry procedure or cohab procedure, so it's going to take some time if it can. Now, it may be that the patient's not going to be doing so well. So we always need to be willing to say, well, it's not going so well. We're going to cut this short today, see if we can come back in another opportunity. Sometimes that discretion is the better part of valor to allow us to succeed in the end. I am a big fan of those pre-visit pharmaceuticals. I think we need to recognize that the inhalant anesthetics as powerful vasodilating drugs can really compromise renal blood flow. And not only by lowering blood pressure, but lowering blood pressure is the greatest problem we see with the inhalants. There is a revolution in anesthetic technique away from using such high levels of inhalants. And it also uh, applies to away from using such high levels of opioids for perioperative analgesia. So this kind of inverts the pyramid, if you will, of what we rely upon as our foundation. We formerly used opioids as the mainstay of our perioperative analgesia. And now in most dogs and many cats, we're using other techniques like for perioperative analgesia. Instead of using really high-dose opioids, we're relying more on preoperative non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. We're using intraoperative local anesthetics. We're using a small amount of alpha-2 agonists. We're using a small but useful amount of ketamine somewhere in our protocol. And as a result of that multimodal approach, we don't need to use nearly the higher level of pure agonist opiates that we did in the past that now are troubled with drug shortages and potential problems of diversion and and misuse. We're also not encumbered with using high levels of inhalants because we're relying more 
on local anesthetics, more on a balanced approach. Now, this cat is different. This cat is different because this cat has significant underlying renal disease. This cat is non is is not well suited for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. I think that the key to success in so much of what we do in all areas of medicine, the key to success is patient selection. It's certainly true with the choice of anesthetic and analgesic drugs. But the key to success is patient selection in this context means that we do not reach for our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents if the animal is azotemic, has history of chronic renal disease, is dehydrated, is hypovolemic, or is otherwise at risk of a renal insult and injury. So this is one patient in which I would not rely on my pre-operative non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. And I would shy away from I would say in this case, we should avoid using the traditional non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents because they are typically nephrotoxic. And particularly if we have a situation develop where we have a failure of autoregulation of blood flow to the kidneys. That requires maintenance of blood pressure. We measure blood pressure in this cat pre-anesthetically. Come in calm on previous pharmaceuticals. Maybe uh, we'll need to get a little butorphanol, maybe a little midazolam in the cat to calm it down a little bit more. Often with the pre-visit pharmaceuticals, a reasonable dose of butorphanol in these older animals, if we're using fear-free principles, is all we need to have a calm animal that will allow us to get valid pre-operative blood pressure readings. I want to maintain the mean arterial pressure in this cat at least above 80 millimeters of mercury. The autoregulation fails below 60 millimeters of mercury, and I would not want to tolerate that. I want to keep the blood pressure really good in this cat. We've been giving this cat, with the owner's assistance, some sub-Q fluids, so it may come into us well hydrated. Now, how do we determine its level of hydration? One of the really nice tools that, again, you may have had discussed on your on your other podcasts is the use of a pulse oximeter that can give us plethysmographic variability index. You're kind of nodding like, yeah, maybe we've talked about that. Yeah. So the massive <laughs> company has a pulse oximeter, several of their models will give an index, a numerical index called PVI. And particularly in patients that are on mechanical ventilation or supported even manual ventilation, we'll see a number come across where the plethysmograph that waveform baseline changes depending on how well hydrated a patient is. It's like the old days we would use central venous pressure, an invasive technique to establish how, how's the preload on the heart and how, how's the heart doing to handle that preload. Well, now we can use this non-invasive technique. It's really nice, you know, if you're shopping around for a pulse oximeter, those are among my favorites, to get one that'll offer that plethysmographic variability index, or PVI. So we might have the ability to assess that animal's hydration when we first take a look at it. Maybe we can look at the jugular vein to see, are they gently distended? But that's the very low sensitivity and specificity. Um, I'd like to, again, do some, some laboratory analysis. I'd like to know what SDMA is. I'd like to know uh, what the hematocrit is, what the albumin is. Uh, and I might consider some preoperative volume loading, gentle volume of this cat. We know uh, and we follow the lower volume fluid guidelines, American Animal Hospital Association and AAFP. So the average cat under anesthesia is only going to get about three mils per kilogram of IV fluids per hour. Uh, this cat, I might want to give three to maybe even five mils per kilogram of IV fluids before we anesthetize it. So we'll set the stage for any vasodilatation that's going to occur and hopefully maintain better perfusion of those kidneys. 
that can be important, but that's not that's not the most important thing. I think the most important thing is to avoid vasodilatation by avoiding excessive use of inhaled anesthetics. So we're going to have that cat pre-medicated with pre-visit pharmaceuticals, probably some gabapentin at home, probably some butorphanol that comes into the hospital, 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram as a pre-med, maybe some midazolam if it needs it. Uh, and, and if it needs something more than that, one of the things I like to use is a low-dose intramuscular alfaxalone if we have it, because alfaxalone, unlike propofol, can be given IN. In a, in a low dose, low volume, I'm thinking about a half to one milligram per kilogram body weight, and that will really contribute to that level of sedation. And that will reduce the amount of general anesthetic that we need to further administer to that animal after we uh, get our catheters in in a stress-free and fear-free manner and get all our monitoring applied and then anesthetize that animal with a top-up dose of either alfaxalone or propofol. And in either case, I would probably precede that alfaxalone or propofol with a low dose of ketamine. IV. And in this particular cat, I probably use about one milligram per kilogram. Uh, we often use two milligrams per kilogram of ketamine IV as a, as a, uh, to precede, uh, immediately precede propofol or alfaxalone to help bridge the gap between induction and maintenance to help maintain sympathetic tone and blood pressure and to contribute to perioperative analgesia. And it doesn't take much ketamine in the patient to achieve all of those goals, all of those goals. Very cost effective. And you have the benefit. For me, I I like to do that too. And I tell people that the benefit is that also you would be giving that loading dose. So if you're going to start a low-dose ketamine CRI intraoperatively, then, you know, you you got it primed already. Absolutely. Absolutely. Talking about uh, CRI, because we may need to use a CRI in this patient if it's not tolerating inhalant. Say we need to maintain anesthesia. And it's just, just given us too much problems with uh, with blood pressure. So if we have the capability of running a CRI, and I'll call that a controlled rate infusion instead of a constant rate, because we do vary that rate. So it's controlled rate infusion. And uh, sometimes the words constant rate don't really tell the truth because we may change that. Now, in dog, we might consider using lidocaine in that CRI also, but not in cats. It's a really popular and nice combination of ketamine and lidocaine and sometimes an opioid, either morphine or something else. Fentanyl works beautifully. But in the cats, we tend not to use those lidocaine CRIs because they're, they're more sensitive to the toxic effects and the toxic and therapeutic level is about the same with lidocaine. So I like your suggestion of maybe uh, ketamine CRI and they're good recipes, good uh, macros available online to set up a CRI in your fluids you're going to use for any particular rate for any particular patient. And a CRI in a patient like this might include, for instance, the ketamine you mentioned, along with some uh, fentanyl would be beautiful. Other opioids can be used, but the longer lasting opioids like morphine and certainly uh, uh, buprenorphine, because they're long lasting, they would tend to accumulate over a period of time. So the, uh, the fentanyl, if you have it, it's inexpensive, but it's uh, wonderful for the CRIs. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. I'm a huge fentanyl fan. Um, <laughs> hopefully nobody takes that sound bite out of context. <laughs> you know, it does carry that baggage. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. So you have to be careful. But, no, when I was personally hospitalized, um, I actually had to have them stop my opioids because I was so violently ill from them. Um, so after abdominal surgery, I relied very heavily on my Toradol, which is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So, yeah. yes, very much. They're so important. You are fortunate. 
Kasha, and I think I am also, to feel those ill effects of the opioids. Both of us are fortunate in that regard because we work in anesthesia on a regular basis. And there are many people who work in anesthesia who have gotten in trouble with opioids. Many people, many people feel the best they ever have when they're in the hospital and they get that first dose of an opioid. And for people who work in anesthesia, that's a big risk factor. That's a big oh, risk yeah. factor professionally. And like you, I feel absolutely lousy on opioids. And yeah. the NSAIDs work wonderfully for me. They would not work well in this cat because no. of its renal disease. You know? yeah. So we're going to look to rely on the opioids. And I think my favorite in this situation would be buprenorphine. And buprenorphine works just beautifully in cats. And we're so fortunate to have the new formulation, the high concentration, Cymbidol, which is a higher concentration of buprenorphine. It's still just buprenorphine hydrochloride, but more concentrated than the usual buprenorphine that we used to purchase and buy. It was, strictly speaking, just a human pharmaceutical product. Now we have a buprenorphine product that is specifically a veterinary product. It's licensed for use in cats. Not in dogs, but even even in dogs, it's a, a wonderful resource and much more economical than the human varieties, even the generic human varieties. So I encourage us all to to run the numbers, see what it would cost you to use the Cymbidol on an equal milligram basis for dogs or cats. But it is off-label in dogs. It is on-label for use in cats, and Cymbidol is on-label for subjection. Ordinarily, we didn't do sub-Q injection with buprenorphine because it doesn't reach plasma concentrations very quickly. But in the higher dose, it does. So the higher dose uh, that's labeled dose for, for Cymbidol is 0.24 milligrams per kilogram to give once sub-Q every 24 hours. Last 24 hours long because it's not cleared rapidly in cats. I've heard it said that cats can't conjugate their way out of a paper bag. <laughs> <laughs> So they don't clear drugs that require hepatic conjugation, like the opioid. So if we give a really high dose of an opioid, and particularly a nice one like buprenorphine that has a ceiling effect and yet reaches high level of analgesia, that drug will last for a long time because it exceeds the, the, the dose exceeds the ability of the body to clear it because it's a high dose. So it saturates the clearance uh, rate of clearance, and it lasts an extended period of time. So we get 24-hour analgesia. Now the... FDA-approved dose at 0.24 milligrams per kilogram will cause a lot of euphoria and madriasis, and cats will look weird, and sometimes they'll play behavior like a two-year-old Labrador puppy. And my clients have said, what the heck did you do to my cat? So fortunately, the manufacturer has a tear-off sheet. Zoetis has a pad of paper. It's tear-off sheet. That's each page is, what should I expect when my animal goes home, when my cat goes home? And it says, yes, you can expect uh, play behavior and sometimes euphoric behavior. They may stare off into space. Surprisingly, for an opioid, they may have increased appetite. They may be hyperthermic. They may have increased body temperature because that can happen with buprenorphine and, and with hydro, morphone, or other opioids in cats. But buprenorphine would be a mainstay uh, as I plan for this cat. And I would like to give it some Cymbidol. Uh, Sub-Q, probably after we have it under control with the butorphanol as a pre-med, because butorphanol gives us a better level of sedation than buprenorphine does. The butorphanol doesn't give us the analgesic quality. Butorphanol shouldn't be relied upon as a powerful analgesic, even in cats, but it will give us a beautiful level of sedation. Dogs, cats, doesn't cause vomiting. It's wonderful. Speaking of vomiting, I would like for this animal also to get some 
neuropathent or serenia. I'm a big fan of serenia. And in fact, in my practice, I used it routinely. Most every patient, even those who are not getting a pure agonist opioid, vomiting is a horrific experience in human patients. And, and our clients don't want their animal to be vomiting. They are willing to pay for the cost of a neuropathy or serenia injection. And the manufacturer went to the trouble of getting FDA approval for IV route of administration because you can sting. So when we get a catheter into that cat, we can give one of the first things, the IV serenia, and then proceed with the IV buprenorphine. Oh, not, excuse me, not IV buprenorphine. We can give that sub-Q as, as uh, Simidol to last 24 hours. Uh, Another option, which is uh, off-label, is the oral buprenorphine. But any use of the oral buprenorphine in cats is extra-label. And uh, the the product is used more often in in dogs, and particularly for motion sickness. Uh, But I'm a big fan of Serenia as a pre-anesthetic, and I would like this cat to get it as a part of his preparation. So we've moved on. We've talked about our induction technique. We're going to get that animal on inhalants. We're going to do pre induction uh, oxygenation for about three minutes with a loose-fitting face mask, being careful and gentle. As we get this animal anesthetized, I like to protect them from getting wet, uh, getting soaked during their dental procedure, and I like to construct a little poncho for my dental patients. I like to take a clear bag. I don't like to use a black bag because it carries a negative content. I like to take a clear bag, almost like a kick bucket liner. You can see through it, so you tear a hole in the bottom of that bag that'll just fit over the cat's head, and that provides a poncho or a raincoat to keep the cat from getting soaked during its uh, dentistry procedure. I like to use that in dogs also. It helps hold the warm air around that animal, helps maintain body temperature. Um, we're going to have either a hot dog type warming blanket or a heated uh, procedure table. I think Shoreline makes them, others make the heated control temperature or a forced air system uh, like. Uh, bear hugger, for instance, and adequate insulation for the animal, good monitoring applied, and we're going to maintain anesthesia if we can with our low level of inhalant. One of the ways we can do that is by placing dental nerve blocks, oral nerve blocks. And in anticipation of those extractions, we'll go ahead and place those. Uh, We'll typically use uh, bupivacaine for those nerve blocks. And one of my colleagues and friends, uh, husband-wife team at University of Wisconsin, Dr. Snyder at Snyder, Wisconsin. He is a dentist and she is an anesthesiologist. They published a nice paper on the extension of the duration of dental nerve blocks by adding buprenorphine to the bupivacaine. They saw a phenomenal extension of the duration of the block. Some people add dexmedetomidine or dextomator at one microgram per cc of bupivacaine to increase the magnitude of the block and increase the du- uh, duration of the block. Uh, so either adding a little bit of dextomator or a little bit of buprenorphine to the bupivacaine, and I believe the dose that they added to the of buprenorphine to the bupivacaine was 0.01 milligrams per kilogram, but I'd have to check the reference uh, to be sure on that dose. But either the addition of a small amount of, uh, of dextomator or of buprenorphine to the bupivacaine before doing those nerve blocks can extend the magnitude and duration. And the nerve blocks to be performed would typically be a um, mandibular nerve block. We call it posterior mandibular nerve block and posterior maxillary nerve block. 
people sometimes will do anterior blocks, either the mental foramen block, middle mental foramen, or inferior alveolar block. Uh, but uh, I've done most of my blocks, either the maxillary or mandibular nerve block for these patients. Now, we do want to be careful and cautious anytime we're doing nerve blocks. Know your anatomy well. Avoid damaging nerves. Avoid damaging vessels. And we don't want to anesthetize the tongue. There are some anecdotal reports of patients chewing their tongue with a bilateral mandibular nerve block, posterior mandibular nerve block. And uh, so sometimes if we know we're going to do extractions on one side more to the uh, caudal teeth and the other side more anterior, we might split the difference and do a, the, the traditional middle mental foramen block on one side and the traditional mandibular block on the other side. But caution is, is warranted in all of our nerve blocks, but they are fantastic for lowering the requirement for general anesthesia. So that kind of sets up a protocol for us. The importance of doing a good dental procedure uh, these days requires good dental radiographs. So the dentists would emphasize that that should include oral dental radiographs. And, and I certainly would want that if my animal were receiving those. And Tasha, I wonder, uh, I've been running my mouth for a long time. I'd like you to interject <laughs> yeah, for your comments. Yeah, I was going to ask you, in your opinion, I know that for a little bit, there was kind of this thought that we always start a low-dose um, dopamine infusion to help uh, increase renal blood flow. But then I was hearing recently that some information came out that maybe that didn't work as well as we thought. So, you know, yeah. can you kind of talk about that at all? Is it worth starting a dopamine, a low-dose dopamine infusion? And for those of you guys who don't know, uh, dopamine is usually a drug that we use when we are dealing with hypotension, when we want to increase contractility, um, although it does also have some alpha effects and can be vasoconstrictive as well. So we do use it quite a bit in surgery for um, dealing with hypotension, but I know specifically in the renal disease animal that is going to undergo anesthesia, there was some thought for a little bit of just starting uh, preemptively a low-dose dopamine uh, continuous rate infusion. So can you talk to us about that? Yeah, certainly. And that's something that I did in many cases in the past, not so much uh, preemptive uh, administration of dopamine, but it certainly would be one of the things I'd reach for early. And, and we, we were aiming for that dopaminergic effect at low dose. And that lower dose, the idea was that a lower infusion rate, if you will, on a, one of those controlled rate infusions, the lower infusion rates were thought to provide more dopaminergic support to increase perfusion in the splanchnic bed, if you will, and the renal, the renal bed also. And then an intermediate dose provided more beta uh, effects on the heart. And then a high dose provided more of the alpha vasoconstrictive effects so that we could ramp up our dopamine as needed to provide those dose-dependent features. But there's so much individual variability that we don't know which one we're hitting in each individual patient. And so that technique has largely fallen out of, of favor, but we would use dopamine to uh, support circulation in patients for several years before we were so enthusiastic about, uh, enthusiastic about dobutamine because dopamine had the, uh, the thought, really, and it turns out some of it was an illusion, that it provided that dose-dependent variable effect on dopaminergic beta and alpha beds. Now that we are using this revolution in anesthetic management of patients where we rely more 
on local techniques. The AHA payment guidelines told us in 2015 we should use locals in every case we anesthetize that's surgical. We should be thinking, what are the various ways we can use locals? And it can be as simple as line blocks, uh, field blocks, uh, line block before laparotomy, the dental blocks before we get ready to do the extraction. So it will even help with the general anesthesia in this case. And as we use our local anesthetics and a multimodal approach to anesthesia in general, and that little bit of ketamine somewhere in there, and even the pre-visit pharmaceuticals make a difference. Now we use such lower levels of inhalants that I don't see nearly as much attention as I did in the past. We are typically anesthetizing patients at one MAC level for the vaporizer setting. So if we look at what does that really mean in alveolar concentration, if we had an anesthesia gas analyzer and we looked at what their exhale level of inhalant, it's often well under one MAC. And yet they're lying there, they're asleep because it's a partial intravenous technique. You know? And if we need to push that to extreme in patients that can't tolerate an inhalant because of hypotension or what other factor. And we might get there with this gas. We might go to a total intravenous technique. Uh, and it's abbreviated with the acronyms, partial intravenous technique, anesthetic technique, or uh, uh, total intravenous anesthesia. So it's either PIVA or TIVA. So TIVA is no longer just a sandal, but total intravenous anesthesia is something we might have to go to in this cat. But nowadays, we're typically in essence going to PIVA in most all of our cases because the local anesthetics are so cheap and effective. One of my residents said, this is pain management for pennies. Non-scheduled substance, easy to apply, can last for a phenomenal amount of time and reduces our requirement for all of the other deleterious medications, all the other poisons, if you will, that we use in our potions of, of anesthesia. So as, as we come to appreciate the uh, subtle science and exact art of potions, you know, and, and admire the beauty of the softly simmering cauldron with its shimmering fumes and come to respect the power of liquids that creep through veins, ensnaring the mind and bewitching the senses. We are reaching for local anesthetics as our mainstay these days. Oh, 100%. I, you know, I definitely teach that in my lectures. I try to tell people that, you know, if you're going to do anything painful, like, you know, the same way you use, you know, on your anesthesia sheet, the way you put induction, alfaxalone, the next thing should be local block. And I want you to tell me which local block you're going to utilize for this patient, you know, whether it be a TPLO surgery or a laceration repair or a dentistry, there's a local block for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Techniques are, techniques are easy and those, those wet labs that you're running already uh, enable people to, to gain the courage again to do them. And it may be that people have all learned how to do an epidural when they're in school, but then they get out and forget how. And I tell people to, uh, to get started again by considering a caudal epidural for a blocked cat to facilitate placing a retral catheter. Oh, Ralph Harvey, don't even get me started on that block. That is my favorite block. I tell people that all the time. <laughs> cost you about 15 cents, right? Oh, and it'll, it, when I say like, um, I was actually taught that block by um, a, a really great anesthesiologist by the name of uh, Dave Brunson. Oh, and, and he taught me that block and he's shout out to Dave Brunson changed my life. Um, and yep. when I tell people that this block will change your life, yes. they don't initially believe me. And then when they start using it on their blocked cats, they come back and they email me and they're like, Oh, holy shit. You were right. This, changes everything. It's Tasha, true. I used to walk through our emergency room 
And I would see our students and interns trying to place a urethral catheter, and I just shuddered. I couldn't watch. I could not watch because I'd watch them traumatizing that urethra. And I think, oh, my God, it's swelling. It's swelling. It's going to shut down. They are dooming this cat, potentially, and it's not in my hands, you know. So it may be that I would have done the same thing. I've been trying to place a urinary catheter. But they may be dooming that cat to a perineal urethrostomy, which many owners cannot afford. And Mm -hmm. if they spent... 10 minutes and 15 cents to do a caudal block with a tuberculin syringe, 25 gauge needle, and a half cc of lidocaine, they could have placed that urinary catheter in three minutes. 100%. 100%. Listen, yes, sacrococcygeal blocks for everyone. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. not for everyone, only for black cats. Are we running out of time already? We are really running out of time. And so who have been driving to work are now sitting in their parking lot at work, just waiting for this show to be over. (laughs) Driveway moment. Um, But hopefully, you know, key points, you know, key points here for this cat that's about to undergo anesthesia. We want to make sure that we give them a little pre-visit pharmaceuticals that are going to take the edge off so we can place that catheter, maybe get some, like a little, little bit of fluids there beforehand. And I I love the point that you made about, you know, giving them some drugs to get some preemptive parameters. You know, you need to know where you're starting at. So I think to get some blood work and get a catheter in and facilitate that as stress-free as possible is so important in these guys to set yourself up for success. And then be ready for hypotension, treat things multimodally, and utilize your local blocks and your technicians uh, for anesthetic monitoring. So, Dr. Harvey, what I would love to do is, since, you know, this kidney case uh, under anesthesia and dentistry is such an important thing, I think that what we will try to do, listeners, is get Dr. Harvey on the podcast again, and maybe what we can do is talk about post-operative pain management and pain management options that are going to be as kidney safe as possible, especially since we know these dentistry patients are going to be dealing with some oral pain uh, in the post-operative period. So we're going to do a part two of this episode to, to be continued. Uh, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to talk with us. I know that every, you know days have been a lot of on the computer, a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of you know just discussions and sitting down, which For us veterinary people, it's hard to sit down at a computer for hours and hours on end. So we definitely appreciate you hanging out with us on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast. And we hope to have you back again soon. Thanks, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. 